Anybody could be seated. It's a little, <laughs> little presumptive. Okay, here we go. Matthew 15. We're going to look at verses 21 through 28 this morning. Um, because again, I just think it's probably the better part of wisdom to take breaks periodically from the, I don't know, kind of sterilized, um, didactic approach of understanding how a church is supposed to work biblically. Um, I just can't do back-to-back messages on that topic. I, I love it. I love the church, and I think the messages have been helpful for everybody, but... Um, I know that I know what's going on with a lot of you, and I think we need we need to get we need to get into Jesus' words, you know, and just reset. So I'm going to look at maybe the most troubling of all of the stories in the Bible concerning Jesus in order to refresh our hearts in Him. All right, so let me pray, and then we'll read this. Father, we ask now that you help us to attend your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would attend our hearts. And Jesus, we just thank you for always perfectly demonstrating the character of God that we might know you. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 21 says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Keep a finger in Matthew 15. I just want to glance really quickly at the parallel account um, in Mark chapter 7. Excuse me. of Mark chapter 7 says, From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And, and that's it. I just wanted us to get just that little tidbit of context that um, he wasn't just standing out next to a tree when this woman came up to him. He was in a house, um, maybe a rented place. <clears throat> Um, if you're familiar with 
the Gospel of Matthew, then you know just one chapter previous to chapter 15, Jesus tried to withdraw there too. And there's this theme that kind of emerges. Mark is very frantic. Mark is is very, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and Matthew is more, um, I don't know, there's more of a, a, a kind of a deliberate plotting pace to Matthew. And in chapter 14 and in 15, you see Jesus, no yawning, you see Jesus try to withdraw from um, I don't think from the people that he was ministering to so much as the constant conflict with the Pharisees and those who sought to oppose him. And in that case, as in this one, um, he wasn't successful. He tries to withdraw and people find him. Um, I, I just point that out because Jesus, you know, he, he said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, Sam, has nowhere to lay his head. He had nowhere to rest. He had no respite. He had no refuge. He didn't have a church that he could go to on Sunday. And he didn't have a home that he could go to after. And I know that all of us come to this place with varying levels of fear and anxiety and worry and frustration and shame and guilt and just the difficulty of life piling up on us. Um, but we get to come to this place and we get to share our burdens with one another and seek to encourage one another. And then we get to go home, right? And be with our families and friends and relax and take it easy. And Jesus didn't have that. And part of the reason that he didn't have that is so that we could have rest ultimately for our souls. So this demonstration that Christ puts on of always being at it and always being working and always being engaged in ministry is not so that guys like me can pretend to be martyrs and imitate him, but so that all of us who are children of God would recognize that he did so many things so that we don't have to. And if your religion is frantic and frenetic and anxious, and it's not something where you sit at the feet of Jesus and just worship him periodically, then I would admonish you, you're not him. He was him. Take it easy. It's okay. All right? So he withdraws because in his humanity he got weary. And I think we should just mark that we, we have a lot to be thankful for. So I'm going to say some things um, about this place. And I expect about 60% of you to be able to add your amen to what I'm going to say. Um, I came out of my last position, partly due to my own impetuous nature and my own stupidity, but partly due to the enemies of the gospel, pretty beat up and, and pretty kicked around. And I didn't leave there knowing that Springfield Baptist Church existed. I just left there because I needed to leave. And a lot of people slowly but surely came out after me. And they didn't come out because we knew that Springfield Baptist Church existed. They just knew that they had to leave. And we were prepared to, you know, put up a teepee somewhere out at Louisville if we had to, just to worship God together. And then by God's kind providence and your open hearts, we landed here. And I, I got to tell you, every week, those of you who are OG Springfield Baptist Church, every week, somebody from 
this group reaches out to me and says, I'm just afraid that we're, we're, step, we're overstepping our bounds. I'm just afraid that we're intruding. I'm just afraid that we're like, it, they're going to think it's a hostile takeover. So we just, like there's this, this fear among all of us who came here in September that we're not demonstrating enough gratitude and appreciation for what you all have done in welcoming us here. So I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, This is exactly what we needed. And I don't, I don't feel like we're contributing very much. You, you may feel like we are, but we don't. We feel like we're like bumping into your china and messing things up. And, but God seems to be knitting our hearts together. And I'm so grateful for this place, for this respite, for this refuge, for this, this people that we get to be together with every week. Amen? Amen. All right. Sorry for that emotional outburst. Get it under control. All right, so back in Matthew 15, uh, verse 22 says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So this is, this is a place, if you, I don't know, imagine that the speaker is Israel, all right? So Jerusalem would be right about here, and Nazareth would be where that dent is in the grill (laughs) there. Um, That's where Jesus grew up, Nazareth. But if you cut straight north from Nazareth into what's now, I think it's still Lebanon, um, you come into the Phoenician region of Tyre and Sidon. So it's on that northern... um, coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful place, but this is not Israel. This is where the, the Syrophoenician people existed. These were Philistines who weren't like the Philistines of the Old Testament anymore. These were mainly people who engaged in trade and were known for being seafaring people. Um, they were called Canaanites by the Jews kind of as it was like a diminutive term, an insult. Um, they weren't really Canaanites in the truest sense, but this woman is no educated Pharisee. This is no Jew. This is not somebody who had the oracles of God. This is somebody who really, it wouldn't be unreasonable for us to expect she has no idea anything about the Bible or the law or the prophets. So how does she even know who Jesus was? is the question that I have. And then she calls him Lord and son of David. So this isn't just some guy named Jesus that she heard can heal people. She has this messianic understanding, messianic understanding and, and uh, view of him. By calling him the son of David, she's acknowledging that she believes he is the Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15 and all the way forward. This woman had understanding that really is kind of remarkable considering where she lived and moved and had her being. And then she, she seems to be pretty familiar with Jesus, not just in Messianic Old Testament terms, but in current terms, because she calls him Lord. She doesn't just call him rabbi or teacher. She sees him, she, she cries out to him and says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me, for my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I think it's worth noting 
that she pleads for mercy for herself when it's her daughter that is afflicted. What do we make of that? Or did you read right past it like I have so many times in the past? I think there's two possibilities here. When a mom pleads for mercy for herself and it's her daughter that's sick, I think possibility number one is when you're, you're caring for someone who is afflicted, who seems to be either terminally ill or terminally dependent, it's exhausting work. Some of you know that. Some of you have had experience with that. I haven't. I've had the experience of ministering to people who are tending for someone who's terminally ill or terminally dependent. And I've read, because I want to be capable of ministering well to those people, I've read some, some things that... I'll share one thing with you that some of you will find horrifying. In their darker moments, it's not uncommon for somebody who's in that permanent caretaker role to wish that the person they were caring for would just die. Because that's how exhausting it is to take care of somebody that can't do it for themselves. It's just like, oh, it, like it, they think it would be better for them and it would be better low-key for me if this person would just perish. So I suspect that she, like Jesus, is exhausted from his work and seeking a refuge and a respite entire, entire T-Y-R-E, um, she's seeking refuge and respite from her work. That's possibility. Second possibility, uh, I'll just say this out loud and hope that a lot of people agree with me. Uh, what parent, when your kids are sick or going through something, what parent doesn't kind of think it maybe is their own fault? Like, this, maybe this is God judging me. In John 9, when Jesus and his disciples come across the blind man who's been blind from birth, the disciples ask Jesus this question, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because there was this understanding and expectation that if you had some kind of a birth defect or malady like that, probably it was the sins of the father being visited on the son. If that's true in and among the Jews, how much more is that going to be true in the superstitious society of the occult in Syrophoenicia? It's common belief in those days. Perhaps this Canaanite woman believed that her daughter's condition was some kind of a punishment for her own sins. Either way, when we are suffering or our children are suffering, we need mercy from the, the creator of all the universe, right? So this is a good prayer that she prays. Verse 23, he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him and said, send her away for she's crying out after us. This is not characteristic of Jesus. Nor is it characteristic of the Jesus who I so love to emphasize when I'm preaching is tuned in and paying attention to those who need mercy. Here is the only occasion we see other than when Jesus is standing before Pilate where he does not give an answer. 
She prays what I think is a good prayer, whatever her motives. She's asking for mercy. All of us who know Jesus have asked him for that, right? And he says nothing. So let's talk about the silence of God. And I'm going to put it at danger of turning into a faith prosperity preacher. I'm going to put it in terms of the things that we ask God for that he doesn't seem to want to give us. So if you can just think for a minute about your life and the times you've reached out and asked him for something and he was silent, I'm going to try to make some application to that. All right. In uh, 1 Kings 18, I think it's 1 Kings 18. Yeah. You have this story that everybody knows of Elijah getting into a competition with the prophets of Baal. Right? You guys remember this? Hey, you guys build an altar. I'll build an altar. We'll each cry out to our God to ignite the altar. And so the prophets of Baal build, build their altar and uh, spend, I don't know how many hours, it's like sunrise to sunset, dancing around it, cutting themselves open and chanting and trying to get Baal to light their altar on fire. And it never happens. And, uh, Elijah builds his and has him dump you know, 50,000 gallons of water on it and get everything good and wet. He prays and instantly this thing lights up. Then there's a little expunging of the false prophets that goes on. And then word gets from Ahab to Jezebel that Elijah has taken out all of her prophets. And she sends word, I think it's in the beginning of chapter 19, to Elijah that, hey, you know how those prophets of Baal ended up? That's how you're about to be by sunrise tomorrow because I'm going to kill you. And Elijah flees and he flees for a long time and he becomes suicidal on the course of his fleeing because he's forgotten already the faithfulness of God and igniting the altar with all the water in it because now his life is under threat. And when your life is under threat, there's two things that tend to be true. Number one, you feel like nobody cares because you're the only one going through it. And number two, until your circumstances change, it seems like God doesn't even care because you're the only one going through it. So in chapter 19, let's look at it. 1 Kings 19. We'll pick it up in verse 9. So Elijah's fleeing. Uh, An angel comes and feeds him because he doesn't even want to eat. He's so suicidal. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left and they seek my life to take it away. You see what I'm talking about? I'm the only one going through this. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, broke in pieces rather the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I, 
I'm not, I'm not trying to give you an absolute understanding and interpretation of this text, but let me tell you what I believe in measure this is showing us. In the course of your life, there are days where the wind is blowing and it's tearing apart the very foundations of everything that you think is going to stand. And then there's an earthquake and then there's a fire and there's just destruction all around. And God is not in those things when you're going through them. That's how it feels. And in this case, God seems to want Elijah to know, look, I'm not in the chaos, in the pandemonium. I'm not through those things, letting you know what my heart is for you. Do you hear what I'm saying? When the earth shakes and the house burns down and the wind's tearing everything apart, that is not God saying, this is how I feel about you. But then there's this whisper. Verse 12. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so we have this repetition. The same conversation happens again. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you'll anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of doesn't even matter, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. When you're going through something, when it feels like you're the only one going through it, over and over and over, the word of God whispers to you, two things are true. Number one, you're not the only one going through it. There are other people all over this planet who love Jesus and are going through incredibly breathtakingly difficult things. And number two, look right at me. The silence of God is not indicative of the heart of God. Divine silence does not equal divine inactivity and divine silence does not equal divine indifference. This woman comes to Jesus and she's crying out like caterwauling in an annoying way that only a woman could. Uh, Just joking. She's crying out and asking Jesus to be merciful and he answers her nothing. And isn't it true for all of us when we read that, there's a part of us that goes, maybe he's not merciful. It's the only time in all of his ministry somebody asks him for something and he doesn't answer them. And that's enough to get us with our feet of clay and our hearts of stone and our minds preoccupied on the flesh to go, ooh, so he's not 100% merciful and loving because he was quiet. There's a rebuke there. And it's going to get worse. So back in Matthew 15... 23 
The second half of that verse says, His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So Peter, James, and John speak up. And uh, what they would like is for Jesus to dismiss her so that they don't have to listen to this anymore. Christians, let's try and not be like that. Okay? I'm not going to malign Peter, James, John, Thomas, Andrew, Philip, the rest of them. But we have people in our midst here who are suffering. And we have people that aren't in our midst this morning because they're suffering. I couldn't help but notice, I knew it was coming eventually when Candy gives us the updates on her stepmom on Sunday mornings. I knew eventually these words would come out of her mouth. And it happened, I think, two weeks ago. Where she said, I feel like all I do is, I don't know what the verb was, complain about this or bring this up or share this with you guys. Because there's something inside of us when we're in it, when we're going through something and it's a prolonged thing and it's not getting better and we're not sure what to make of it, but, but we know that we need people to pray with us. So we share about it. There's a part of us that's like, I'm just being annoying. They don't want to hear it. And it's not because we hate and don't trust everybody. It's just because we kind of know in our own hearts, like we wouldn't want to hear it. So Carrie is beset with lupus and Andy Smith is beset with rheumatoid arthritis. And listen to me, they could come in here every Sunday and say, let me tell you how much it hurts today. Here's the pain scale. Here's where I'm at right now today. And some of us would be like, oh my gosh, again? We got to hear about this again? Because our hearts are just like the disciples. Oh, Jesus, send her away so I don't have to hear this anymore. But what if James and Peter and John and Thomas and Andrew and Bartholomew instead went and and took her by the hand and took her in and said, Jesus, will you please help her? Instead of saying, Jesus, will you please get rid of her? I'm not saying that if we all lay hands on Carrie and Andy and pray for them, that God will absolutely heal them. But I'm saying it's worth a shot. It's worth a try. And if God is being silent right now to their prayers and he's silent to our prayers individually when it comes to mind, when we remember, and if he's silent about our prayers for protection and provision for this church, maybe we need to be praying more together. When you see somebody crying out to God for relief, may we not be people who seek to be away from the sound of their cries. Maybe the disciples thought this was a hopeless case. I mean, she's not from Israel. And Jesus is going to confirm that in a minute for us. But there's something convicting going on here, isn't there? Because we sometimes think, "Ah, there's no point praying for that. That's fatal. Doctors have said so. Pancreatic cancer, death sentence. Not for my God. Lupus, permanent autoimmune dysfunction leading to death. Not for my God. He can heal anything he wants to. I remember when John and Darcy, who, by the way, she texted this morning and said they couldn't be here because they're they're not feeling well, but they are still planning on doing the bonfire on the 19th. Okay, got that out of the way. 
I remember when John and Darcy were having a bake sale to raise money so that they could adopt a baby. And we had been praying for three or four years that she would be able to get pregnant. You guys, some of you remember this? We're pre- the, the bake sale, we're like, oh, all right, I'm bringing my, my dollars and cents and we're going to buy Darcy's stuff. Like we're just, we would have given him money anyway, right? But it was so cute. They baked all these goods. And within weeks, that woman was pregnant. They told her it's not going to happen. It's, it's not for you. You're not going to have a baby. Well, now she's got three of them and they might be the most precious children I've ever seen. But the Mathesons are giving them a run for their money. (laughs) Or John and Andy's boys. Love those boys. They're hysterical. How many of you thought something was never going to happen? Prayed for it. And God was silent. And you got some other people alongside praying with you. And God was still silent, but you kept at it. You kept trying. And then when you thought it wasn't going to happen, God answered. Keep praying for that kid that's wilding out, that doesn't believe the Lord and lives their life like they were raised by Philistines and not by a respectable parent. Keep praying for that kid. Keep praying for that grandkid. Don't give up. Verse 24, he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Look right at me. He didn't say no. He didn't say no. But he's clarifying things for her. He wants her to understand, look, what I have is not first and foremost for you. It's for these people, just for the record, I'm running away from because I'm tired of. That's who it's for. He doesn't say no, and she doesn't give up. 25, she came and knelt before him. So he's in the house. She's outside. Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, for my daughter is cruelly set upon by a demon. And he ignores her. And the disciples are like, can you just tell her no so she'll leave? And then Jesus gets in eyesight. I think she busts the door in and comes in the house and throws himself at her feet and pleads for mercy again. And he says, I was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she said, Lord, help me. It's another great prayer. Don't feel bad when the only thing you can eke out in your moment of trial and tribulation and struggle is... Help, mercy. So he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, ouch, first of all, right? I want you to know that this is not goyim. This is not that term that the, that the Pharisees used for the Gentiles where it's like an insult dogs. He uses a different word. It's the, they didn't ha- really have dogs as house pets in those days, but maybe in Tyre they did, because that's what he's talking about. He's like a little dog, a little house pet that you love. It's not good to give the children's food instead of them having it to the dog, even though you probably, many of us would say at times, love the dog more than the kids. <laughs> 27, 
She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, this, I think this is the ticket. I prayed about it last night, long into the night. I prayed about it all morning this morning because I'm, I'm like, when I'm pretty sure I'm right, but none of the commentators agree with me. I always feel a little unsteady, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. And, and it's, none of them disagree with, I'll just say it. <laughs> the key here is that this woman needed to be brought to the place where she could demonstrate humility. So Jesus says, you're not one of mine. And she persists, help me. And so he says, look, I shouldn't be taking that which belongs to mine and giving it to you. And she says, certainly Jesus Certainly you have something left over for me. Just give me the leftovers and it'll be enough. She doesn't recoil at being told she's not one of his main targets. She doesn't go, why not? She doesn't pretend to be a Jew. She doesn't get insulted and sulk and pout like we do when God says no. She just says, you got, there's got to be something left. You're God. There has to be something left. She doesn't bargain. And then Jesus, verse 28, answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And, and we believe in and serve and love the same Jesus. Amen? Amen? So whatever's going on, whatever we're going through, it seems to me, if we ask him for mercy, and, and there's a delay before we feel like we've gotten it, maybe we should ask him again because he's the same Jesus. And if it still seems like there's a delay, maybe we should get some other people together with us and ask him again, because he's still the same Jesus. And when she asked him and humbled herself and kept asking, what happened? I mean, you could, you could take the first line of this story and the last line, skip everything in the middle, and ultimately it's the same thing that happens every time somebody reaches out to Jesus and asks him for mercy. There's nobody in this room who won't receive mercy if they ask Jesus for it. In Luke, I think it's 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unrighteous judge. And I, it's one of my favorites. Let me see. Yeah. 18.1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. I love that he says that to himself. Self? <laughs> though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? What's he saying? He's saying God's got a better heart than that judge. He actually loves his people. And if there's a delay, it won't be long. You're going to get an answer to your prayers. Look, it might be no. The answer might be wait. But it might be yes. And he doesn't say, stop asking me. He did to Paul when Paul prayed the third time that the thorn in the flesh might be removed. And I suspect that God would give you a similar sense if you needed to stop praying for something. He would, in a divine way, lead you to be content with whatever he has sent. Right? But his heart is not unrighteous or uncaring. He loves his people, and he wants to do for them justice and mercy and love. So rest your heart in that. Let's pray.